Since the dawn of human history, the lands of the ancient Near East, what most people today refer to as the Middle East, are where some of mankind's early great achievements took place. This is the area of the world where megafarms, cities, and writing were all first developed. Sumerians, Akkadians, Babylonians, Hurrians, Hittites, Elamites, and Assyrians. These are just some of the more common names of the countless peoples, civilizations, kingdoms, and empires that once inhabited this region. Then, as it is now, the ancient Near East was an ethnically, as well as religiously, diverse place. Between the 9th and 7th centuries BC, the dominant power in the Near East was clearly the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the colossal descendant of the Assyrian kingdoms of old. At its height around 650 BC, the realm of the Assyrian king stretched from the Zagros Mountains in western Iran to beyond the Nile in Egypt. Along with the Babylonians, the Assyrians saw themselves as heirs to the great Sumerian and Akkadian kingdoms and empires that had preceded them well over a millennium before. They knew that their lands, those of Sumer, Akkad, and of course, Assyria, were already extremely ancient. Around 850 BC, a new people start to show up in the inscriptions, annals, and archives of the Assyrian kings. Though rough, illiterate, and relatively poor, they're mentioned as extremely skilled warriors who often fought on horseback. The Assyrians called them the Mada, but we today know them as the Medes. Occupying the areas in and around the central and northern Zagros Mountains of what's today Iran and Iraq, the Medes were an Iranian people who spoke an Indo-European language that was unlike anything else heard in Mesopotamia at the time. Though relative newcomers to the region, they were clearly an adversary that was worthy of respect. Assyrian kings would constantly brag about how they massacred hundreds of Medes, only to have to return the following year to subdue them again. The Medes, though, weren't the only Iranian people in the area. Other such tribes, with a similar culture, language, and religion, also occupied areas of the Zagros Mountains and the Iranian Plateau. One of these was the Parsa, better known to us as the Persians. Since perhaps as early as the second millennium BC, these Iranian peoples, whose homeland is believed to have been the steppes of Central Asia or Southern Russia, had been migrating into Western and Southwestern Iran. Because they had no written language and left few material remains, knowledge of their early history is quite scarce. By the time that they had encountered the Assyrians in the 9th century BC, the Iranian peoples were already spread throughout western, southwestern, and central Iran. For the most part, they lived a semi-nomadic life, much like their ancestors did on the Central Asian steppes. Eventually, they formed little fiefdoms and kingdoms. The Assyrian and Greek sources that we have portray the Medes as a fiercely independent but extremely divided people. There were fierce rivalries between various Median factions, which was one of the reasons as to why they could never form a united front against the many Assyrian incursions into their land, known as Media. Eventually, though, 
the Medes must have realized that they would be confined to a life of Assyrian subjugation if they continued to fight amongst themselves. And so, at least according to the Greek traveler and historian, Herodotus, they chose a man named Diochis to rule over them. It was he who founded, or at least made the city of Ekbatana, the capital of the new Median state. Ekbatana is today the modern city of Hamadan, Iran. Forming a stronger, unified kingdom may have allowed the Medes and other Iranian tribes to have survived and even expanded into new territories, especially further south into the region that for millennia had been known as Elam. Since the days of the early city-states of ancient Sumer, some 2,500 years prior, the Elamites had been the perennial antagonists of the kingdoms and empires of Mesopotamia. In the 8th and 7th centuries BC, the Elamites were most afraid of the expansionist Assyrians. Though a civilization on the decline, the Elamites still had enough power to influence the politics of their neighbors in Mesopotamia and they consistently supported whichever faction had the best chance to topple Assyrian puppet regimes in Babylon. However, around 650 BC, the Elamites made a major miscalculation when they got involved in an Assyrian civil war between two brothers vying for power. The Assyrian king Ashurbanipal and his younger brother, Shamashumu'ukin, who as king of Babylon, wanted to make a clean break from Assyria. Ultimately for the Elamites, Ashurbanipal's forces defeated and killed Shamashumu'ukin and retook Babylon in 648 BC. Desiring to put an end to Elamite interference in Assyrian affairs once and for all, the following year, Ashurbanipal sent his army to ravage Elam and its greatest, most legendary city, Susa. In an inscription, the Assyrian king boasts about the death and destruction that he inflicted on both Susa and the rest of Elam. Susa, the great holy city, home of their gods, seat of their mysteries, I conquered. I entered its palaces. I opened their treasuries where silver and gold, goods and wealth were amassed. I reduced the temples of Elam to naught. Their gods and goddesses I scattered to the winds. The tombs of their ancient and recent kings I devastated. I exposed to the sun, and I carried away their bones towards the land of Asher. I devastated the provinces of Elam, and on their lands I sowed salt. While Ashurbanipal's obliteration of Susa and Elam may have eliminated one of his greatest threats, it also may have led to the end of Assyria as a political entity. With Elam no longer being a power of any significance, the Median and Persian tribes were able to expand and, especially in the case of the Persians, further establish themselves in the lands of southwestern Iran. It's likely around this time that the Persian tribes moved into the area of Anshan, which, along with Susa, had once been a great center of Elamite power and culture. Ashurbanipal died in 630 BC, and soon, a crisis of succession broke out that led to a weakening of imperial authority in many of the provinces as well as massive rebellions against Assyrian rule. It was in such an environment that Diochis' grandson, Sayasharis, turned the fledgling Median state into a world power. 
Allying with Nabopolassar of Babylon, the two kings took advantage of Assyria's weakness to launch a two-pronged attack on the ancient superpower, eventually bringing an end to the Assyrian Empire, once and for all. In the aftermath, the two allies split the Assyrian territories amongst themselves. Nabopolassar and the Babylonians took most of central and southern Mesopotamia along the eastern Mediterranean, while Sayasharis and the Medes were awarded large parts of northern Mesopotamia and Anatolia all the way to the Halys River. This new arrangement brought the Medes into conflict with the kingdom on the other side of the Halys, Lydia. For five years, King Sayasharis and the Medes fought against King Aliatis of Lydia, with neither side gaining an advantage over the other. In Herodotus's version of events, which he wrote down nearly 200 years after they'd occurred, he states that the Medes and Lydians finally ceased hostilities after day had been changed to night, which scholars have determined is a reference to an eclipse. Such a sight was interpreted as a sign to both sides that the gods were displeased and demanded a settlement. Astronomers have been able to precisely date the eclipse to May 26th, 585 BC. The following year, Sayasharis died, and his son, Astyages, became king. When Astyages took the throne in 584 BC, he had inherited a relatively new and expanding empire that at the time may have been the most powerful in the region. While his western frontier didn't really change much, it's believed that during his 34-year reign, he brought territories in what's now central and eastern Iran under Median control. Most of this information comes from Herodotus and other Greek writers. They, along with Babylonian and other chronicles, all agree that it was during the reign of Astyages that one of the greatest figures in all of world history was born. The Greeks knew him as Cyrus II of Persia, but we today mostly know him as Cyrus the Great. In the old Persian language, his name is Kurush. The sources that we have on the life of Cyrus mainly come from the works of Greek writers such as Herodotus, Xenophon, and Cetisius, along with Babylonian chronicles written in Akkadian and the Hebrew Bible. Many of these sources, though, contradict with each other. Despite this, and with the help of archaeology, scholars today have a pretty good idea of what the world was like during Cyrus's time. There are several stories and legends with regard to the early life of Cyrus the Great, many of them sounding more like tales of fantasy than fact. For example, according to Cetisius, Cyrus was not even of royal blood, but a commoner, the son of a Persian bandit and a shepherdess. Another story is that he had been reared by a she-wolf who had found the young baby abandoned in the mountains. According to Herodotus, Cyrus was the grandson of King Astyages of Media from his mother's side of the family. His father was Cambyses of Persia. This would have made him half Mede, half Persian. Not all ancient writers and even modern scholars agree with Herodotus' account, but his has by far become the most popular version of Cyrus' biography. However, they tend to all agree that around 550 BC, Cyrus overthrew Astyages and became the king of a united Persian Median state. One text of a Babylonian chronicle, commonly known as the Nabonidus Chronicle, seems to confirm this. It states, 
Astyages called up his armed forces and went against Cyrus, the king of Anshan, for purposes of conquest. As for Astyages, his army rebelled against him, and he was taken into custody. They presented him to Cyrus. Cyrus went to the land of Ekbatana, the royal city, and silver, gold, goods, and property, which he carried away as spoils from Ekbatana, he took to Anshan. According to the Greek geographer and historian Strabo, it was on the site of his victory over the Medes that Cyrus established a new royal capital city known as Pasargade. This was also the start of the Persian Achaemenid Empire, named after a man who in Greek is called Achaemenes, the legendary ancestor of all of the kings of the Persian Achaemenid dynasty. Along with their king, Astyages, the Medes surrendered their capital, Ekbatana, and both were treated generously. Along with being absorbed into the Persian armed forces, Medes were able to keep their government posts, though under Persian supervision. In fact, they were second to the Persians only in imperial status, and even this was negligible. For the most part, the Median Empire didn't actually fall, but merely went through a change of management at the top. Despite this, other kingdoms in the region viewed Cyrus with suspicion, especially the two largest ones, Lydia and Babylon. Both of these great kingdoms not only had treaties of friendship with Astyages, but their rulers were also related to him through marriage. To them, Cyrus was a usurper and had to be dealt with. The first kingdom to act was Lydia, which in 550 BC was ruled by Aliatis' son, Croesus a king whose name has become synonymous with great wealth. Herodotus even credits him with being the first to have minted gold coins, though some scholars today believe the honor should really go to his father. Regardless, Croesus saw an opportunity to seize land from what had once been his median neighbor. Legend has it that Croesus consulted the Oracle of Delphi, whose Pythia told him that he would destroy a great empire. Croesus took this to mean the empire of Cyrus and the Persians. This, along with his alliances with Babylon, Egypt, and Sparta, gave him the confidence in 547 BC to cross the Halys River into Persian territory. Shortly thereafter, he took the old Median fortress of Pateria in Cappadocia. Croesus may have thought that being a new and untested ruler, Cyrus would end up doing nothing. He was wrong. Cyrus accepted Croesus' challenge and with his troops made the 1,200-mile march to Pateria within a few months. There, the Persian and Lydian armies met in a bloody battle, the outcome of which was a stalemate. Judging his forces to have been outnumbered, Croesus decided to return home to the Lydian capital of Sardis. In his mind, he could finish the war the following year with the help of his Babylonian, Egyptian, and Spartan allies. In the words of Herodotus, He planned to spend the winter in Sardis, and then, when spring arrived and these allied troops had joined with his own, he would again wage war against the Persians. And so with this in mind, when he arrived at Sardis, he sent messengers to his allies, ordering them to assemble at Sardis in four months. As for the mercenary army that had just fought the Persians, he dismissed and disbanded the entire force, never expecting that Cyrus 
who had been no more successful than himself in the battle, would march against Sardis. Croesus must have assumed that Cyrus wouldn't dare to follow him back to Sardis, but instead turn around and depart for Persia before the bitter winters of central Anatolia arrived. In general, wars in the ancient Near East weren't fought in the winter. This, though, was a miscalculation on Croesus's part, as Cyrus turned out not to be a conventional foe or military strategist. Croesus hadn't realized that Cyrus and the Persian army had stealthily been in close pursuit. The Lydians were completely taken by surprise when they saw the Persian army coming out of the horizon. They quickly reassembled to defend Sardis. According to Herodotus, it was ultimately the Persians' wits that won the day. He tells us, When Cyrus saw the Lydians lining up for battle, he grew apprehensive at the number of their cavalry and, acting on the advice of a Mede named Harpagos, he brought together all the camels that had accompanied his army, carrying food and equipment. He removed their baggage and mounted men on them dressed as horsemen, and, after equipping them in this way, he ordered them to advance in front of the rest of the army, toward the cavalry of Croesus. Then he commanded the infantry to follow after the camels, and he placed his entire cavalry behind the infantry. The reason he arranged for the camels to face the cavalry was that he knew that horses fear camels and can endure neither the sight nor the scent of them, so that the Lydian cavalry, upon which Croesus most relied, would thereby be rendered useless to him. And when they met in battle, as soon as the horses smelled and saw the camels, they wheeled around and fled, and Croesus's hopes were shattered. Still, the Lydians fought on, and eventually, many of them, including Croesus, made it safely behind the high walls of Sardis. Though the Persian and Median forces were able to effectively lay siege to the city, they were at a great disadvantage. The odds of a successful direct assault on the city were grim, and even if ultimately successful, would result in numerous casualties for the Persians. Starving Sardis into submission wouldn't work either, as the city likely had more than enough food to last until the summer, and by then, Croesus's Babylonian, Egyptian, and Spartan allies would have already arrived. However, and according to Herodotus, on the 14th day of the siege, one of Cyrus's soldiers noticed a Lydian drop his helmet off a section of Sardis's city walls, and then hastily come down to retrieve it. The Persian carefully observed the Lydian soldier's route back up the wall, and determined that in that particular area, it wasn't as high as previously believed. The next day, a small Persian force led a surprise attack along that particular section of the wall, and within a matter of hours, Sardis fell. Croesus was later captured and initially sentenced to death, but Cyrus showed mercy and spared his life. Later on, he even made Croesus one of his most trusted advisors. Afterward, the Ionian Greek city-states of Western Asia Minor that were once subject to Lydia also became part of the expanding Persian Empire. Scholars don't always trust Herodotus' accounts, and they definitely don't take them at face value. However, they seem to all agree that by 545 BC, the Lydian kingdom and the Greek Ionian cities to the west were indeed under Persian control. After the conquest of Lydia, 
Cyrus focused on the eastern part of his empire. Here, we have less information about his campaigns, but it's believed that between 545 to 540 BC, he was able to consolidate and expand the eastern borders of his empire to include Bactria and Sogdiana, what today would include parts of Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. In 539 BC, Cyrus made one of the most famous conquests in all of world history, that of Babylon. Since their joint military venture against Assyria several decades prior, the Babylonians and the Medes had mostly been at peace. Astyages had also given his daughter in marriage to King Nebuchadnezzar II, further linking the two royal families. All that now was over. Like Croesus, Babylon's current king, Nabonidus, may have also deemed Cyrus to have been a usurper. However, unlike his Lydian counterpart, who had by now lost his throne, Nabonidus took no action. In fact, according to Babylonian chronicles, he barely seemed to take any real interest in running his own kingdom, and was noticeably absent from some of Babylon's most sacred festivals, especially those dedicated to its patron deity, the god Marduk. One chronicle states, The king did not come to Babylon for the ceremony of the month Nisanu. The god Marduk did not go out in procession. The festival of New Year was omitted. It turns out that Nabonidus had spent most of the past decade in the Arabian oasis town of Tema, worshipping the moon god, Sin, as well as restoring the deity's shrines throughout the realm. In his absence from Babylon, he left his son, Belshazzar, to run the day-to-day -day affairs of the kingdom. Babylon's priesthood, as well as thousands of its citizens, must have taken offense to the fact that their king was putting another god above their own beloved Marduk. After his conquest of Lydia, it became clear that Cyrus would eventually come for Babylon, perhaps simply to punish it for allying with Croesus. Nabonidus must have known this, for in 540 BC, he hastily returned to the city and ordered that the statues of the gods and goddesses from other sanctuaries throughout his empire, including Sippar and Uruk, be brought back to the capital for safekeeping. Such actions implied that Nabonidus was expecting an imminent Persian attack. Scholars believe that due to their great displeasure with Nabonidus, many of Babylon's priests and army officers may have reached out to the Persian king, promising to assist him if he got rid of their unpopular and sacrilegious sovereign. Not only had Cyrus promised to respect the gods of Babylon, such as Marduk, but his reputation for leniency and the clemency that he showed his former adversaries, such as Croesus, may have also played a part in rallying others to his side, such as the Babylonian governor of the nearby province of Gutium, who defected to the Persian side. Cyrus's army reached Babylon on October 12th, 539 BC, while the people of the city were celebrating a religious festival. A Babylonian chronicle records the event as follows. The month Tashritu, the 16th day Gubaru, governor of Gutium, and the army of Cyrus without a battle entered Babylon. Afterwards, after Nabonidus retreated, he was captured in Babylon. 
interruption of rites in Isagila or the temples, there was none, and no date was missed. On the third day of the month, Arasamnu, Cyrus entered Babylon. They filled the Haru vessels in his presence. Peace was imposed on the city. The proclamation of Cyrus was read to all of Babylon. And so, Persian forces took the capital city of Babylon without any bloodshed. Cyrus himself arrived approximately two weeks later. Along with being a humane and highly capable ruler, Cyrus is best known to most of us today for the tolerance and respect that he showed towards the religious traditions of those he conquered. Most famously in the Judeo-Christian tradition, he's remembered for freeing the Jews from their captivity in Babylon, and also allowing them to return to their homeland in Judea, as described in the Hebrew Bible's Book of Ezra, where Cyrus is apparently quoted as saying, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let all survivors, in whatever place they reside, be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. The issue, though, that many historians and archaeologists would have with such a passage is that it was written down hundreds of years after the events it refers to took place. The same is also true of the works of Greek writers such as Herodotus, Xenophon, Cetisius, and others. They wrote their accounts a considerable time after Cyrus's death and really had no way of verifying if the stories that they'd heard or read about Cyrus were actually true. In 1879, an Assyrian archaeologist named Hormuz Rassam discovered a clay foundation cylinder while excavating the ruins of ancient Babylon. Known today as the Cyrus Cylinder, part of it reads, I am Cyrus, king of the universe, the great king, the powerful king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world, son of Cambyses, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, descendant of Tespis, the great king, king of the city of Anshan. My vast troops were marching peaceably in Babylon, and the whole of Sumer and Akkad had nothing to fear. I sought the safety of the city of Babylon and all its sanctuaries. As for the population of Babylon, I soothed their weariness. I freed them from their bonds. Marduk, the great lord, rejoiced at my good deeds. I sent back to their places, whose shrines had earlier become dilapidated. The gods who lived therein, I collected together all of their people and returned them to their settlements, and the gods of the land of Sumer and Akkad, I returned them unharmed to their cells, in the sanctuaries that make them happy. With the exception of outlining his royal lineage, it's amazing how similar the text of the Cyrus Cylinder is to the biblical passage read earlier. 
If you switch Yahweh with Marduk and replace Jerusalem with the names of some of the cities of Mesopotamia mentioned, the two texts are nearly identical in their content. The message in both is essentially that conquered and new subjects of Cyrus had nothing to fear and could worship as they chose. Not only this, but the new Persian regime would even support the upkeep or rebuilding of the temples and shrines of the various peoples living under its banner. This general policy of tolerance towards the customs and religious beliefs of others is something that, with a few exceptions, nearly all Achaemenid kings upheld. And it's also something that many ancient Greek and Roman historians would often admiringly comment on. Such a policy, though, was also practical, as it would have been nearly impossible for a relatively small group of Persians and Medes to have managed such an expansive and diverse empire in the long run without showing such goodwill towards its many subject peoples. In addition to Babylonia, the kings of the Eastern Mediterranean who had up until then paid tribute to the Babylonians, swore their allegiance to Cyrus. Leaving his son, Crown Prince Cambyses, in charge of the city, Cyrus is said to have traveled east to deal with Scythian tribes who were causing problems on his northeastern border. According to Herodotus, Cyrus was killed there in battle against a Scythian tribe known as the Mesagatai, who were led by a queen named Tomiris. Herodotus describes this fatal encounter as follows. What happened then was, in my judgment, the most violent of all battles ever fought by barbarians. This is what I heard about how it was waged. It is said that the battle began with each side shooting arrows at each other while still far apart. Then, when their supply of arrows was exhausted, they fell upon each other at close quarters, with spears and daggers. For a long time, they fought fiercely, and neither side was willing to flee. But at last, the Mesagatai prevailed. A large part of the Persian army perished in this battle, and in particular, Cyrus himself met his end. He had reigned for 29 years. This, though, is disputed by other accounts notably Xenophon, who in his Cyropedia writes that Cyrus died peacefully of natural causes and old age. Regardless of how he died, Cyrus's body was laid to rest in a modest tomb that he himself had designed in his capital city of Pasargade, a site today not far from the modern city of Shiraz, Iran. Though Cyrus was a great conqueror who established the largest empire of antiquity up until that time, Later generations have remembered him for much more than this. Today, he's considered to be the father of the Persian people and the founder of the first true Persian state of any real significance. He's also remembered in the Bible for his kindness to the Jewish exiles in Babylonia and allowing them to return back to their homeland to re-establish their temple. Greeks and later Romans, who in general viewed the Persians as their mortal enemies, also respected Cyrus as the ideal ruler. However, the next king of the Achaemenid Empire, Cyrus's son Cambyses II, was at least remembered as being just the opposite. Upon Cyrus's death, 
His eldest son, Cambyses II, became the new king of kings. Cambyses is the Greek version of his name. In Old Persian, it's Kambujia. Cyrus had been preparing Cambyses for the position ever since he made him king of Babylon shortly after his conquest of the city. Cyrus's other son, Bardia, was given jurisdiction of the eastern provinces in Central Asia, with the added bonus of not having to send any tax revenue to the central government in Persia. This was probably Cyrus's way of making sure that the two brothers wouldn't fight after his death. The transition of power was relatively easy, and Cambyses, as far as we know, faced no opposition upon becoming king. In fact, almost immediately, he focused on the one big project that Cyrus had intended, but couldn't achieve before he died. Specifically, the conquest of Egypt. It's believed that preparations for the Egyptian invasion took four years. Unlike the Babylonians, who had surrendered their capital without a fight, the Egyptians would not be so easy to subdue. In order to give his army the greatest chance of success, Cambyses' Persian and Median soldiers trained extra hard to get used to the difficult terrain that they'd have to overcome just across the Sinai Peninsula to reach the Nile Delta. Cambyses also worked with disaffected groups from within Egypt. Similar to the case of Babylon before Cyrus arrived, the priests of Egypt were at odds with their ruler, Amasis II. Cambyses took advantage of this and launched a propaganda campaign against Amasis, which helped him to eventually gain the support of many important priests and nobles within Egyptian society. However, just before Cambyses launched his invasion, Amasis II died. His son, Samtik III, took over the throne. Untested in battle and as pharaoh, Samtik III was unprepared for the Persian attack. The two sides fought outside of the town of Pelusium, the final result being that the Egyptian army was decisively defeated, and soon after that, Samtik III was captured. According to Herodotus, Cambyses showed him mercy and allowed him to remain in Egypt. However, after it was uncovered that he'd been plotting against the new king of kings, Cambyses had him executed. With the conquest of Egypt complete, Herodotus tells us that Cambyses coveted other kingdoms in Africa. In his campaigns to subdue the lands west of the Nile, he launched an expedition to take the oasis of Siwa, but a massive sandstorm is said to have swooped in and swallowed up his forces while en route. Cambyses had also planned to conquer Carthage, but his navy, which mostly consisted of Phoenician sailors, refused because they didn't want to fight against their kin, since Carthage had originally been founded by men from the Phoenician city-state of Tyre. Ultimately though, Cambyses did receive tribute from Libya. Another one of his campaigns was to subdue Nubia and the kingdom of Cush. According to Herodotus, this campaign proved to be extremely costly. Unlike the well-planned campaign to cross the Sinai, Cambyses' men ran out of supplies and food, with things apparently getting so bad that some of the Persians are said to have resorted to cannibalism. Other texts seem to contradict this and imply that Cambyses may have at least left a garrison there. The Greek geographer and historian Strabo writes, Moreover, when Cambyses conquered Egypt, he advanced with the Egyptians as far as Meroe, 
In fact, it is said the name was given by him to both the island and the city because his sister, Meroe, died there. In all honesty, there's no other evidence to indicate that Cambyses ever reached Meroe, let alone founded the city. However, what Strabo's text seems to imply is that there was at least a Persian expedition that was not as disastrous as Herodotus would have us believe. In addition, during the reigns of later kings, Persian archives and even reliefs do indicate that tribute was brought to Persia from Nubia and Kush. Another historian, Diodorus Siculus, also indicates that Cambyses may have had some success in the lands south of Egypt because he mentions a particular type of plant that the Persians brought back and successfully cultivated in the land of the Nile. Of all the Achaemenid kings, Cambyses II has a reputation for being the absolute worst, at least according to Greek sources. Herodotus constantly points out in his writings that Cambyses was completely insane and that he committed all sorts of despicable acts while in Egypt. Some of these include mocking his new subjects' religious customs, desecrating their temples, indiscriminately killing their priests, and most notorious of all, personally stabbing the sacred Apis bull, believed by pious Egyptians to be the physical manifestation of the god Ta, the patron deity of craftsmen and architects. While it's possible that there may be some truth to these tales, we also have to analyze their source. Herodotus claims to have only been writing down what the local Egyptians were telling him, but they themselves were likely to have been extremely biased against the Persians. By the time that Herodotus had visited Egypt, the Egyptians had already rebelled several times against their Persian overlords, and would end up doing so several more times in the future. Being historically a proud and extremely xenophobic people, most Egyptians would have hated living under Persian rule, and so it's not surprising that they would have had ill feelings towards the first Persian and Achaemenid king to have ever conquered them. Despite this, there are more measured accounts of Cambyses' rule that contradict Herodotus' stories. One of these comes from Uja Horesnet, who during the reigns of Cambyses' predecessors, Pharaohs Amasis II and Samtik III multitasked as an admiral, physician, and priest of the Egyptian goddess, Neith. After the Persians conquered Egypt in 525 BC, Uja Horesnet became an influential advisor and sometime physician to both Cambyses II and his successor, Darius I. In an inscription on a very famous statue uncovered in Egypt, that's now in the Vatican Museum, Uja Horesnet tells us the following about his foreign patron. The great chief of all foreign lands, Cambyses, came to Egypt, the foreign peoples of every foreign land being with him. He gained majesty of this land in its entirety. They established themselves in it, and he was great ruler of Egypt and great chief of all foreign lands. His majesty assigned me the office of chief physician. He made me live at his side as friend and administrator of the palace. I composed his titulary in his name of King of Upper and Lower Egypt. The King of Upper and Lower Egypt came to Sais. His majesty betook himself to the temple of Neith. He touched the ground before her very great majesty as every king had done. 
he organized a great feast of all good things for Neith, the Great One, the Mother of God, and the great gods who are in Sice, as every excellent king had done. This is just one example. Another comes from a limestone stele depicting Cambyses II with the Apis bull. The inscription on this object reads, King of Upper and Lower Egypt, son of Ra, Cambyses, may he live forever. He has made a fine monument for his father, Apis Osiris, with a great granite sarcophagus, dedicated by the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Son of Ra, Cambyses, may he live forever, in perpetuity and prosperity, full of health and joy, appearing as king of Upper and Lower Egypt eternally. These and other discoveries made by archaeologists indicate that Cambyses II may not have been as bad in his role as pharaoh as had been previously believed. In total, Cambyses is said to have spent three to four years in Egypt. Since most of the information that we have about him comes from this time, it's easy to forget the fact that he was also the ruler of the rest of the Persian Empire. During his long absence though, the foundations of that empire began to teeter, as unrest and then outright rebellion broke out in many of its core territories. Not only this, but there was also a usurper sitting on his throne. When Cambyses received news of these events, he rushed home to deal with these matters. However, he never got there, as upon his journey home, he died, supposedly of a stab wound that some sources claim was self-inflicted, while others, an attempt at suicide. The untimely death of Cambyses II is one of the greatest mysteries in all of ancient history, and some scholars believe that it may have involved a man who would eventually go on to become one of the most powerful kings of all time. That man was Darius I of Persia. No other ruler of Iran, ancient or modern, ever controlled more territory or commanded the amount of resources that the Achaemenid king, Darius I, also known as Darius the Great, had at his disposal. Like the names Cyrus and Cambyses, Darius is also the Greek version of his name. In the Old Persian language, it's Darya Vaush. Written sources mention little about his life before becoming king. His father was Histaspes, the satrap, or governor, of Bactria under Cyrus and Cambyses II. He's actually better known by his Old Persian name, Vistaspa. Darius eventually rose to become a high-ranking officer in the Persian army, and may have even been in charge of Cambyses' personal guard. The story of how Darius came to power is remarkable, if not highly controversial, within the scholarly community. It all started in Egypt, when Cambyses II received some rather disturbing news. Back in Iran, there was a usurper on the Persian throne. Who this man really was, though, has been debated by scholars ever since a serious study of the two main accounts of this event came to light. One account is from none other than Herodotus. The other comes from Darius himself in what has become known as the Behistun inscription, named after the small mountain of Behistun upon which it's inscribed. Today, Behistun is located just outside the city of Kermanshah, Iran. 
In ancient times, there was a highway that passed just in front of the mountain, and the inscription, along with the relief of a victorious Darius, towered nearly 100 meters above the ground. This allowed it to be seen from the road and beyond, like a sort of ancient billboard. While the relief was visible at a distance, the inscription was not. It's almost as if it was written only for the gods to read. The Behistun inscription, parts of which we'll examine shortly, is written in three languages, Old Persian, Akkadian, and Elamite. This has arguably made it the most important ancient inscription for archaeologists studying the history of the ancient Near East. It was only after first deciphering the Old Persian version of the inscription that scholars were later able to decipher the other two versions, which ultimately led to their ability to translate the hundreds of thousands of Babylonian, Assyrian, and other Akkadian language documents that have been uncovered throughout the Near East. Both the Behistun inscription and Herodotus's version are pretty consistent with regard to the main events of what's become known as the Crisis of 522 BC. In that year, Cambyses received word of a man claiming to be his younger brother, Bardia, who had revolted against him and crowned himself as the new Persian King of Kings. However, unbeknownst to others, Cambyses had secretly ordered the murder of Bardia before leaving for his campaign in Egypt, probably because he feared that his younger brother might take his throne while he was away. It turns out that a Magian, or priest of the old Persian religion, who bore an uncanny resemblance to Bardia, came out of the shadows and usurped the throne. In the Behistun inscription, Darius calls him Gamata. The inscription also recalls the series of events leading up to Cambyses' death as follows. Thus saith Darius the king, This is what was done by me after I became king. The son of Cyrus, by name Cambyses, of our family, he was king here. This Cambyses had a brother, by name Bardia. He had the same mother, the same father as Cambyses. Then Cambyses killed that Bardia. When Cambyses killed Bardia, the people did not know that Bardia had been killed. Then, Cambyses went to Egypt. When Cambyses had gone to Egypt, then the people became disloyal, and the lie grew among the people, both in Persia and Media, and among other peoples. Then there was a man, a Magian, Galmata by name. He lied thus to the people, I am Bardia, son of Cyrus, brother of Cambyses. Then all the people became rebellious against Cambyses. They went over to him, both Persia and Media, as well as the other peoples. He seized the kingship. After that, Cambyses died his own death. The precise meaning of that last line, Cambyses died his own death, is a bit vague. Did Cambyses die of natural causes, or did he commit suicide? Darius's text doesn't clarify, but Herodotus's version indicates that his untimely death may have been due to complications from a self-inflicted wound to the thigh, ironically, in the same spot that Cambyses is said to have struck the Apis bull. 
As Cambyses prepared to go to Persia to deal with the usurper, Herodotus tells us the following. He leapt upon his horse in a fit of exasperation at all his misfortune, but as he jumped, the tip of his sword's scabbard fell off, and the bare blade stabbed his thigh, in the very same spot he had earlier struck Apis, the god of the Egyptians. This is yet another example of Herodotus turning historical events into a moral tale and adding extra details to the story in order to make it more entertaining for his audience. In the case of Cambyses, the Persian king had been both disrespectful of Egyptian traditions and downright cruel to the Egyptian people. So now, heaven was punishing him by making him suffer in much the same way as the Apis bull, whom he'd also struck in the thigh. Cambyses lived in agony for another 20 days, after which he's said to have died somewhere in Syria. The story, though, doesn't end there. Herodotus tells us that the false Smerdis, who's the same person as Galmata the Magian in Darius's account, now sat on the Persian throne and was becoming popular amongst the subject peoples by exempting them from both military service and paying taxes, at least for the next three years. That would make anyone happy. The problem was, Gamata was not Bardia. He was not of the Achaemenid royal family, and thus, not a legitimate ruler. For this and other reasons, Darius felt that he had to act, since no one else was. Not one to mince words, Darius goes into quite some detail as to why, with the help of the god, Ahura Mazda, he was justified in deposing and killing Gamata the Magian. He describes the events of 522 BC in the Behistun inscription as follows. Thus saith Darius the king. This kingship which Gamata the Magian took away from Cambyses, this kingship had belonged for a long time to our family. After that, Gamata the Magian took it away from Cambyses. He took to himself Persia, Media, as well as the other countries. He made them his own. He became king. There was no man, neither a Persian nor a Mede, nor anyone of our family, who could take the kingship away from that Gamata the Magian. The people were very much afraid of him, thinking that he would kill many people who had known Bardia previously. Here is the reason he might have killed people, lest they know that I am not Bardia, son of Cyrus. No one dared to say anything about Gamata the Magian until I came. Then I invoked Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda brought me help. Ten days of the month Bagayadi were passed. Then I, with a few men, killed that Gamata the Magian and his foremost followers. A fortress by name Sikayahuvati, a district by name Nisea in Media. That is where I killed him. I took the kingship away from him. With the help of Ahura Mazda, I became king. Ahura Mazda granted me the kingship. The kingdom which had been taken away from our family, I re-established it. I put it back in its place. Darius claims that Gamata took the kingship away from his family. However, we know that Cambyses had no heir. And, unlike Bardia, 
Darius was not a son of Cyrus. So then, how is it that Darius could lay claim to the Achaemenid throne? This he also tells us towards the beginning of the Behistun inscription, where he outlines his lineage. I am Darius, the great king, king of kings, king in Persia, king of countries, son of Histaspes, grandson of Arsamis, in Achaemenid. My father is Histaspes. Histaspes' father is Arsamis. Arsamis' father is Ariaramnes. Ariaramnes' father is Tespis. Tespis' father is Achaemenes. For this reason we are called Achaemenids. From long ago we are noble. From long ago we are royal. Kamata's death in Media was just the beginning. Though Darius had put an end to him in September of 522 BC, he and his allies fought several campaigns against what remained of Kamata's supporters, as well as nine rebel kings. These campaigns lasted well into the next year, with again, the Behistun inscription being our best source. It recounts all of the battles that he, as well as his trusted generals and allies, fought in a civil war that had they not won, would have torn the empire apart. The nine rebel pretender kings were ultimately all defeated, and those who were captured, brutally punished before being executed. The Behistun inscription is a marvelous piece of work, and tells us a lot about Darius and some of the most fragile years of the Achaemenid Empire's long history. However, are its contents true? In other words, is Darius himself telling the truth? There are many scholars who don't think so. They argue that both the story of Cambyses' death, the Bardia lookalike who seized the throne, and even Darius's lineage and relationship to Cyrus's family, as outlined in the Behistun inscription, are all fabrications. They were simply concocted to make Darius seem like a legitimate Achaemenid king and not a usurper. In fact, most believe that the man Darius killed was not someone pretending to be Bardia, but Bardia himself. What may have happened is that during Cambyses' relatively long absence from Persia, Bardia declared himself to be king. Therefore, so as not to be blamed for killing a son of Cyrus, Darius invented the story of Gamata the Magian. If so, then Darius's tale would be one of the greatest conspiracies and cover-ups in ancient history. Of course, this is just a popular theory and can't be proven. Darius himself also seems to have known that many would dispute his version of events. And for those people, he simply says, This that I have done by the favor of Ahura Mazda, in one and the same year I did. You, who shall read this inscription hereafter, let what has been done by me convince you. Do not think it a lie. By the favor of Ahura Mazda, much else has also been done by me that has not been written in this inscription. It has not been written down for this reason, for fear that, whoever shall read this inscription hereafter, it should seem too much to him, and so it should not convince him, but he think it false. It's not that previous kings of the ancient Near East didn't believe in doing righteous acts or defending the downtrodden, 
but Persian monarchs in their inscriptions seem to have put special emphasis on the ethical character that an individual should possess, including themselves. For example, remember the earlier passage of the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, where he brags about the devastation he caused his Elamite enemies. I reduced the temples of Elam to naught. Their gods and goddesses I scattered to the winds. The tombs of their ancient and recent kings I devastated. I exposed to the sun, and I carried away their bones towards the land of Asher. I devastated the provinces of Elam, and on their lands I sowed salt. Achaemenid kings spoke less about how they made the vanquished suffer, and more about how they sought to create order and stability through their righteous conduct. For example, recall Cyrus's own words when his men entered Babylon. My vast troops were marching peaceably in Babylon, and the whole of Sumer and Akkad had nothing to fear. I sought the safety of the city of Babylon and all its sanctuaries. As for the population of Babylon, I soothed their weariness, I freed them from their bonds. Marduk, the great lord, rejoiced at my good deeds. In parts of the Behistun inscription, Darius also talks about the value of his own righteous conduct and how because of this, the god Ahura Mazda came to his aid. For this reason, Ahura Mazda helped me, because I was not disloyal, I was not a follower of the lie, I was not an evildoer, neither I nor my family. I acted according to righteousness. Neither to the powerless nor to the powerful did I do wrong. You who shall be king hereafter, the man who shall be a follower of the lie or an evildoer, to those be not friendly. Punish them well. Again, this doesn't mean that Achaemenid kings didn't commit brutal acts against those who opposed them, because at times, they did. After all, they were running a state, not a monastery. However, there was a special emphasis on righteous conduct, truth, and justice that even Greek writers picked up on. In one passage, Herodotus remarks about the simple education that Persian boys received. From the age of five to the age of twenty, they teach their sons just three things. To ride a horse, to shoot the bow, and to speak the truth. Truth, or telling the truth, was extremely important. In fact, Herodotus goes as far as to claim that the greatest sin for a Persian was to tell a lie. They believe that the most disgraceful act a man may commit is to lie. After this, the next most shameful step is to incur debt. They cite many reasons for this belief, but it is true most of all, they say, because a man in debt inevitably tells lies. Herodotus also observed the following with regard to Persian religion. I have acquired knowledge about the customs of the Persians, and here is what I have learned. They do not erect statues, temples, and altars. They deem anyone who does these things a fool, and they feel this way, I presume, because unlike the Hellenes, they do not believe that the gods have human qualities. So, 
The ancient Persians had a special reverence for truth and worshipped without the use of idols or images of anthropomorphic gods. But why was this? The answer most likely lies with the ancient religion that we today know as Zoroastrianism, which at one time was the predominant faith amongst the Iranian peoples and also the state creed of several native dynasties throughout the Persian-speaking world. The religion was founded, or rather reformed, by a prophet named Zarathustra, who the Greeks called Zoroaster. The precise date and place of Zarathustra's birth is unknown. The scholars believe that he lived sometime between the years 1800 to 1500 BC, over 1000 years before Darius's time. This is based primarily off the fact that the language of the early Zoroastrian texts, including the words of the prophet Zarathustra himself, date to that time period. Most scholars also believe that he lived somewhere in Central Asia, perhaps just southeast of what was once the Aral Sea. The early Iranian peoples that the Persians and Medes belonged to believed in many different gods and goddesses. Zarathustra, though, taught that there was only one god worthy of worship, whose name is Ahura Mazda. For Zarathustra, all other gods were false gods. Along with this early form of monotheism, Zarathustra taught that the universe was in a constant cosmic struggle between the forces of good and evil. Those who allied with Ahura Mazda against evil spoke the truth and enabled progress in the world would be rewarded after death with entrance into heaven, while those who allied with evil, often referred to as the lie, would be punished in the afterlife and condemned to hell. However, at the end of time, there would be a final judgment whereby all souls would be called to account for their actions in the world. And after a purification process, even those who had committed grave sins would be allowed to enter into heaven. In fact, it's from Zoroastrianism that many historians of religion believe that the concepts of heaven, hell, a day of judgment, the devil, angels, and monotheism itself may have originated from. Instead of using statues or idols, Zoroastrians used, and still use, fire in their rituals as a symbol of Ahura Mazda, whose name literally means Lord of Light and Wisdom. The priests of the Zoroastrian religion were later known by the Greeks and others as the Magi. Based on their religious vocabulary, as well as devotion to Ahura Mazda, who at least Darius worshipped exclusively, it's quite likely that the Achaemenids practiced some form of Zoroastrianism. However, good thoughts and words were not enough. To run an empire, especially one that had just survived a civil war, action was needed. And so, Darius went about restoring and consolidating the empire that Cyrus had created by reorganizing its administration and bureaucracy. This included the military, satrapies, and numerous public works projects. Along with this, he found the time to extend the empire's borders and network of tributaries, including into Europe, further into Northern Africa, Central Asia, and the rich gold-producing areas of the Indus Valley region. Herodotus wrote that Darius divided his empire into 20 satrapies, or provinces, though the Behistun inscription mentions 23. Later, with the conquest of Thrace and the Indus River region, that number likely expanded to at least 25. 
Not all satrapies were the same. Some, such as the steppe or desert provinces, had few resources or gold to contribute. Others, just the opposite. Thus, satrapies were assessed to determine the amount of taxes or annual tribute each was expected to pay. As a representative of the king, the provincial governor, known as a satrap, was in charge of both collecting taxes as well as providing security for the satrapy. Most satraps were chosen from amongst the royal family or Persian nobility. Every so often, and depending on the satrapy, the king would pay a visit to inspect the area and make sure that the satrap was properly doing his job. The empire's communication network was also greatly improved and expanded. One example was the empire's road network, which was a sort of ancient interstate, or in this case, inter-satrapy highway system. The most famous highway within this network was known as the Royal Road, which stretched about 2,400 kilometers, or 1,500 miles, and connected the city of Susa in southwestern Iran to Sardis in Lydia, on the western end of the empire, today in Turkey. The road was not only used for the king's messengers and troops, but also for commercial purposes, essentially linking the economies of the Near East with those of the Aegean. Herodotus, who himself may have traveled on part of the road, wrote the following about it. As regards this road, the truth is as follows. Everywhere there are royal stages and excellent resting places, and the whole road runs through country which is inhabited and safe. Through Lydia and Phrygia, there extend 20 stages, amounting to 94 and a half leagues. And after Phrygia succeeds the river Hales, at which there is a gate one must pass through in order to cross the river, a strong guard post is established there. And of the Persian king's messengers, Herodotus says the following. Now there is nothing mortal which accomplishes a journey with more speed than these messengers. So skillfully has this been invented by the Persians. For they say that according to the number of days of which the entire journey consists, so many horses and men are set at intervals, each man and horse appointed for a day's journey. These neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor darkness of night prevents from accomplishing each one the task proposed to him with the very utmost speed. The first then rides and delivers the message with which he is charged to the second, and the second to the third, and after that it goes through them handed from one to the other. Connecting satrapies by land, though, wasn't enough. Darius also wanted to link the empire by sea, especially the Red Sea with the Mediterranean. And so, he ordered the construction of a canal between the two, a forerunner to the modern Suez Canal. An inscription uncovered near Suez reads, Thus saith Darius the king, I am a Persian, from Persia I seized Egypt. I gave the order to dig this canal from a river by name Nile, which flows in Egypt to the sea, which goes from Persia. Afterward, this canal was dug thus as I had ordered, and ships went from Egypt through this canal to Persia thus as was my desire. To reflect the greatness of the Achaemenid Empire, around 518 BC, Darius founded a new capital city called Parsa, 
better known to us by its Greek name, Persepolis, meaning City of the Persians. It was located in the Persian heartland about 50 kilometers southwest of Pasagarde. Ancient Greek historians wrote that during the empire's heyday, it was the wealthiest and most magnificent city in the known world, surpassing even Babylon. Persepolis, though, was different than the empire's other capitals. For example, Ecbatana, Babylon, and Susa were all capital cities of past kingdoms and empires. Pasagarde was the city of Cyrus and founded around the time of the empire's birth, but it didn't reflect what the empire had become. By contrast, Persepolis symbolized a Persian empire that had come of age and was in many aspects the center of the world. Strengthening the state internally, Darius led military campaigns to extend its reach outward as far as possible. Of all his campaigns, the two best documented were those around the Aegean and Black Seas. Around 510 BC, Darius launched a war against Scythian tribes in southeastern Europe, specifically around the Danube and Black Sea regions. The main source for information of this campaign is Herodotus, who viewed it as a failure because the Persians ultimately withdrew. However, perhaps to create a buffer between the Scythians and the western part of the empire, Darius gave his general, Megabazus, 80,000 men to subjugate Thrace, which the Persians called Skudra. Along with Thrace, the Persians further expanded their influence in the Aegean by supporting several kings and tyrants that were favorable to them, including on the island of Samos. However, after a failed campaign to subdue the island of Naxos in 499 BC, the nearby cities of Greek-speaking Ionia broke out in rebellion against the Achaemenid king of kings. They were aided in large part by the Greek city-states of Athens and Eritrea. The rebels not only successfully threw out the Persians, but in a brazen attack shortly afterward, managed to burn large parts of the provincial capital of Sardis. However, their victory was short-lived, and within a few years, the Achaemenids eventually took back their Ionian possessions, and in the process, set fire to the city of Miletus, which had been the center of the rebellion. With Ionia once again subdued, it was now time to punish its allies. Herodotus tells us that Darius dispatched forces into Greece by island hopping through the Aegean Sea. Leading the campaign were Darius's nephew, Artaphernes, and Datis, a high-ranking Mede. Leaving in the summer of 490 BC from Samos, the Persian fleet sailed through the Cyclades and took the island of Naxos, followed by Charistos. Both were treated harshly. Finally, the Persian forces came to Eritrea, one of the main supporters of the failed Ionian revolt. After fierce fighting, it too was conquered, plundered, and then burned in retaliation for the Ionians' destruction of Sardis just a few years prior. Not too long afterward, the Persian fleet arrived on the shores of Attica, specifically the plain of Marathon, just 26 miles or 42 kilometers from Athens. The area was chosen so that the Persian cavalry could be used to their maximum advantage against any infantry force. Along with the Persians was Hippias, the deposed tyrant of Athens, who served as a guide. According to Herodotus, the Athenian infantry held a strong defensive position in the hills above the plain, 
This would have put the Persian cavalry at a great disadvantage, and so they waited. Finally, after about eight days, the Greeks charged, possibly because the Persian cavalry had left the scene, getting back onto their ships in order to sail south and attack Athens directly. In the fight that followed, the Persian infantry began to suffer heavy losses, and so they retreated and boarded their ships. The Persian fleet then left for Athens, but the Greek forces got there just before them. Realizing that they couldn't take the city without suffering heavy losses, the Persian fleet left and sailed back to Ionia. The Athenians considered their victory at Marathon to have been a game-changer, as it was the first time that any Greeks had successfully defeated such a large Persian force. For the Persians, though, it was a minor setback. Their goal had been to punish the supporters of the Ionian Revolt, and this, with the exception of Athens, they'd largely done. In addition, the Achaemenids further consolidated their position in Thrace and the Aegean, so overall, the campaign was successful for them. Though it's unclear whether or not Darius planned to permanently annex Greece and venture further west, it is agreed amongst most scholars that he at least intended to return with a larger force sometime in the future. That, though, wouldn't happen, as he died of old age roughly four years after the Battle of Marathon. He was entombed in the side of a cliff at a site today known as Naqsh-i-Rustam, about six kilometers southeast of Persepolis. Reigning for 36 years, Darius left behind an empire that was not only at its height, but greater than anything else that the world up until then had ever seen. He also left behind pretty big shoes for his son and successor, Xerxes, to fill. It was Xerxes who would launch a new campaign into Greece, and fight against Greek coalitions in some of the most consequential battles in all of history. We'll take a look at the life of Xerxes and later Achaemenid kings in part two of this series on the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Stay tuned. As always, thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. I'd also really like to thank Grandkeg69, Yap de Graf, Pasta Frola, Michael Lewis, Daniel Allen, Denny Van Eka, TV, Robert Morgan, Cher Cam, Farhad Kama, and all of the channel's patrons on Patreon for helping to support this and all future content. Check out the benefits to being a Patreon member, and if you'd like to join, feel free to click the link in the video description. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as continue to listen to special audio programs on the History with Sai podcast. Thanks again, and stay safe.